two verses are in Mark are Jesus' summary statement of what life is about, what is most important. And part of this comes in the context of Jesus just asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And then he asks them, who do you say that I am? And so I want to propose to you all those things I listed at the beginning of, of, this, of this sermon, these things, these questions you might have going into life. What if maybe the most important one you can seek to answer this year is, do you really know who Jesus is? Who do you say that he is? Because out of that, Jesus gives these two verses that we just read. And he's saying, you have to decide who I am if you want to really know what life is about and if you want to really live life in a way that it was intended to be lived. The big idea is this. When you know who Jesus is, you know who you are. When you know who Jesus is, you know who you are. And when you know who you are, you know what life is really about. Let me show you this. Let me show you this from these two verses again. I rewrote them on the screen just to try to section them out a little differently, make us look at it slightly different. Here's what he says. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What are these two verses about? First, they describe what life ultimately is and how to get it. And then, secondly, Jesus points out that real life is a matter of, of a certain kind of desire and a certain kind of decision. Let me, let me show you that. I'm going to add a couple more verses to this so you can see it in a little bit more context. Here's the first part, how we know that this is really about what life is about. Look at verse 35. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And then if you look at verse 36 and 37, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The word that's translated life twice and then soul twice is actually the same Greek word. The word is psyche. That's not a very hard word for us to know. It's where we get the word psychology. It's the study of psyche. It's the study of the essence of a person. So broadly speaking, what is psychology? It's the study of human thought and behavior, of development, of personality and emotion, motivation. All that makes up the essence of a person. So Jesus is using a word that describes the center of our inner world. This inner self with all of its many and various aspects. So what he's talking about is the epitome of an individual is your life. It denotes your identity, your personhood, your selfhood, what makes you distinct in this world. And this is amazing. Jesus is a brilliant psychologist, we might say, because in only a few verses, he's describing uh, the primary means by which we can define ourselves, the way we seek to define life. And how does he say that we do that? We seek to gain life. We seek to gain a meaningful, personal, significant life existence. Because you see what he says? Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses it for me in the gospel will save it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul, forfeit your life, forfeit your psyche, yourself? When we look at these verses, we see that we attempt to have life by gaining the whole world, is what he's saying. What does that mean? 
Jesus says that this is our way of living, the way we seek to be in the world, we seek to gain for ourselves. But ironically, what we seek to gain for ourselves on our own terms turns out to be a loss. We can forfeit our life when we try to gain our life on our own terms. Jesus is describing what we all know to be true when we pause and think about life. Or as Pastor Tim Keller put it out of New York City, he says, every culture points to certain things and says, if you gain those things, if you acquire or achieve this or that, then you'll have a self. You'll know that you're valuable. Traditional cultures would say you're nobody unless you gain the respectability and legacy of marriage and family and children. In individualistic cultures, it's different. The culture says you're nobody unless you gain a fulfilling career that brings money and reputation and status. But regardless of such differences, every culture says identity is performance-based and achievement-based. You either gain yourself by having the, the right kind of family or spouse or children, or, or you gain yourself, you have the right kind of life by having a significant career that makes you the right kind of money and gives you the right kind of status and puts you in the right kind of people group. And Jesus is saying, that will never work. Have you ever noticed that? No matter how many things you gain that your culture values, it's never enough. It's never big enough. It's never bright enough to outshine the dark spot in our psyche, in our soul, that wonders, am I ever going to be enough? Am I ever going to have enough? And what happens if I lose what I do have? If you're building your identity on somebody loves me, you're building your identity on I'll get that great career. If something goes wrong in your relationship or if something goes wrong in your career, they fall apart or you lose them or there's incredible pain within them, you'll feel like you're lost because that's how you've been defining yourself. Again, it's not that those things are bad. Jesus doesn't say those are terrible things. You should not want them. He says if you try to build your life on them, if you try to gain them and say, now I have life, now I'm secure, now it's okay. You notice that? A relationship ends painfully and you struggle with, am I a worthwhile person? Or will I ever stop doing those bad habits that push that person away? Or what if I'm not doing well? What if, what if this year becomes really hard? What if class is difficult? What if I don't do as well as I hope that I do? What if I don't get the job offer I was looking for? What if I don't meet my parental expectations? Who am I if, I if I fail, if I don't gain enough things? What if I mess up? We might say, well, look, you know, this is why we come to church. We come to church to remind us who we are. The Lord is speaking to us. <laughs> What, what he's saying is, it's not just about getting good things into your life. And I want to tell you, that includes church. That includes religion. Look, if you say, look, I actually know that. I have messed up my life. I have done some things that I deeply regret. I know it. It humbled me. I know that I can't do everything I'd like to do, and I've screwed up sometimes. But then you're like, well, if I come to church, or I come do some things that will make me, I pray enough, and I do enough good stuff with God and his people, and I come to church enough times, then I'll, be, I'll become a better person, and I'll be a good spiritual person. But after that, you might say, well, okay, I can admit that I've been a failure. I've done immoral things. I've done wrong things. So I come to church and I want to become a better person. But 
Do you see how sometimes that can just become another performance-based identity? I come do good church things and that'll make up for the other things. What Jesus is saying, nope, I invented the church, but that's not what I invented it for. Jesus is saying the only way to true, real, ultimate life is an entirely other way. It's an entirely other way. It's not, I performed enough to gain my life. It's also not, I do life on my own terms, so it's good enough for me. He's telling us it's an entirely different way. God cares about all the good things we're talking about. He cares about work. He cares about our relationship. He cares about our families. He cares about money. He cares about how we are with one another. Except he says, none of these are the foundation of real life. So what is it? If real life is not something you can do based on what you can achieve, then what is it? Well, there's two things that he tells us here in, this, in these two verses again that he's showing his disciples what real life is and how to get it. And he says it's two things, discipleship and salvation. He does this by describing two statements of, desi- of desire and decision. He's calling out our desires and saying, what do you really want? And have you decided what it is that's really worth wanting? Did you notice this? Verse 34 and verse 35 both begin in the same way. Whoever wants to be my disciple... And then verse 35 begins, whoever wants to save their life. Whoever wants to be my disciple, then he says, must deny themselves, must take up their cross. Whoever wants to save their life must lose it. So he's saying life is not based upon what you achieve, whether good or bad. It's not ultimately based on that. These statements of desire and decision are are calling us to the kind of foundation that Jesus is seeking to lay in his disciples' lives. And the foundation of discipleship is salvation, and the foundation of salvation is an exchange of life beyond how we currently understand it. Let me say it again. Let me say this this way. See how it says in verse 35, for whoever wants to save their life? Well, for is a causal statement. So he's saying, Whoever wants to be my disciple, why would you want to be, my, by, be a disciple? Because you want salvation. Well, why would you want salvation? Because you've come to see that the kind of life you've been working for and striving for and working to get and to gain and to achieve, it just really never gets there. It's not because we don't work hard. It's not because working hard doesn't matter. It matters a whole lot. It just has to be put in the right context. Working really hard to gain life won't actually gain you life is what he's saying. So here's the thing. We're going to do this in this ministry all the time, all year long. We're going to call people to discipleship. We're going to call people to follow Jesus. But the thing is, Jesus is saying, that's not really the first thing. Don't just put some spiritual disciplines in your life. Don't just show up to church and be a good person that way. That's actually not going to help you. The first thing, the only way to be a real disciple, to be someone who is, who is growing in the life God intends, is to first be saved from the life that you already have have to be saved from the life that you already have. Let me put it this way. This is why you have to decide who Jesus really is and why it may be the most important thing that you do all year. Every day, every desire, every decision that you make shows you what your life is really oriented towards. Is it towards proving yourself to be a worthwhile person? 
or proving it through getting somebody else to tell you you're a worthwhile person? Or is it trusting that Jesus proved to be a worthwhile God when he saved you? We've got to get into salvation. We have to see what that is because the claim is that Jesus is telling you there's a whole other way of life, and that's called salvation. And it's only rooted in the way he operates. You know, right in the middle of writing this very stuff that I was just telling you, I was uh, at a coffee shop, and a friend came up to me. Uh, my friend is an atheist, and she came up to me in tears, and uh, she just, we hadn't really talked for quite a while, but she came up in tears and was describing what her life is currently like. And the, the work that she's doing is completely unfulfilling and actually pretty confusing right now. And she sees no end sight. They're like, where's the end of it? Is there an end to this epic project that I'm doing? Is there an end to this thing? And then she was also in tears because looking at a relationship she recently had has been like a couple other relationships she's had where there's a guy who won't actually date her but uses her for the things that maybe dating can get you. And she comes and she's like, somebody told me you're a good person to talk to and we're friends. You and I don't believe the same stuff. But I don't know what else to do. I, I'm struggling with self-esteem stuff. I'm struggling with pain. I thought, man, how many conversations have I had like this? How many times has this been my story too? And as we talked about it and we worked through it, she ended up feeling a bit better about that as trying to confirm some really good decisions she's making about changes in her life. She said, you know, I don't believe what you believe. I think I just need to keep trying to be strong. But also, some of the only good conversations I've had about my life have been with my Christian friends. And I don't say that to like elevate us as Christian people. I say that because Jesus is at work in that. He's showing us that life isn't built on those things. And what she was experiencing was work was falling apart, relationships were falling apart. And so she's like, myself is falling apart. I feel lost and broken, but I don't know why. That's the life that Jesus is talking about. He's saying that we're all there, and her Christian friends aren't better than her. We're just those who God has shown us, yeah, you were in that place. Do you want a different kind of life? Do you want to build your life on a different foundation? Because there is one. It's the salvation that God offers to us. Here's the bigger context of Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verse 22, all the way to chapter 10, verse 52. I told you, these, this middle section of Mark is Jesus consistently telling his disciples three times, I'm going to suffer, die on a cross, and rise from the dead. And his disciples keep uh, engaging that conversation by saying, I wonder which one of us is the greatest. Yeah, it's really bizarre. If you read it, you're like, What? How are they getting to that? They keep thinking about who's the greatest. They keep still thinking about how am I going to gain life for myself? And Jesus is like, I'm going to die and give you life when I rise from the dead. And they keep saying, can I have the same power you have, Jesus? Can I have like all the cool stuff that you're going to do? Except don't die. They keep telling him, Peter, literally just before this, takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. The first time Jesus says, I have to suffer and die, Peter says, no. And do you know why? Because even though Peter had just said, yes, you are the Savior, you are the King, 
five seconds later, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because your mind is set on the things of the earth, not on the things of God. Your mind is set on only human concerns because Peter liked the idea of Jesus being a savior, but he really hated the idea of Jesus being a savior who died. Because what did that possibly mean for this guy who spent a couple years following Jesus around? It means he might have to die too. And it means that Jesus might not be who he really wants him to be. What Jesus do you worship? What Jesus do you follow? The whole beginning and ending of this section, here's how I know this is an important section in Scripture. It's marked off by this brilliant storytelling. And the beginning is a blind man getting healed. And the end, at the end of chapter 10, oddly enough, is another blind man getting healed. And do you want to know what those stories are about? The blind man in, the early, in chapter 8, verse 22, beginning there, Jesus comes and he heals this blind man, but he does it in a way he doesn't do it anywhere else. He doesn't fully heal him first. He takes mud and spit and like puts it on the guy's eyes and then he wipes it away and he says, what do you see? And the man says, I see people now. But they look kind of like trees walking. They're really fuzzy and blurry. It's like he still needs glasses. He can see where he couldn't see before, but he can't see completely. And then Jesus heals him completely and says, and makes him totally well. Now he sees people. So what, is he can, what can he see? He sees people specifically. He can make out faces. He can understand who's who. They're not all just blurry blobs walking down the street. Why does that matter? Because right after that is when Peter says, Jesus, you're the Lord. You're the Savior. And then when he says, when Jesus says, do you know what that means for me? I'm going to suffer and die. He says, no, no, you can't do that. He's, Jesus is using the story of the blind man as an al- a parable to say, you, you people who follow me, you who claim to follow me, you don't really see me. You only partially see. This whole middle section of Mark is trying to show us if you want to have life, you have to really see Jesus for who he is. But actually, that's incredibly hard. And it's not easier if you're one of the people who literally walked in his sandals with him on the dusty roads of Jerusalem. Those people didn't get it either. That didn't make it easier for them. They were just as confused because what's confusing about life and especially about the Bible and about the gospel is that God comes in and turns everything we think we know upside down and tells us we've got it all backwards. The end story of the other blind man that he heals, that man is named Bartimaeus. And there's no partial healing. It's just a straight up immediate healing. But he says, your faith has made you well. Go on your way. And then it says Bartimaeus followed Jesus on his way. Desire and decision. Bartimaeus says he trusts that Jesus can heal him because Jesus is the Savior, because of what Jesus is going to do. And so Jesus says, now you're free. You can see, you can do whatever you want now that you can see. Go wherever you'd like. And he says, I will follow you. His desire and his decisions are about following Christ now because he can see, and not just physically see, but he sees in every way that Jesus is trying to get his disciples to see throughout this passage. Why am I telling you all of that? Peter and all the disciples cared about life on their own terms. And when they were looking for a Savior, they recognized they were humble enough to know My life isn't all that it should be. But they had a lot of ideas about what life should be, and when Jesus contradicted that, they didn't really like it. 
They wanted life on their own terms still. See, for them, if Jesus died on a Roman cross, he couldn't conquer Rome. They wanted him to be a political king who would save them from the tyranny of their current environment, which was oppression by a Roman government. And Jesus comes and says, that's not God's plans. When you want to live life on your own terms, you're actually far more in line with Satan than you are with God. Get behind me, Satan, he says. What can you exchange for your life? You remember that in verse 37? What can anyone give in exchange for your life? He's trying to tell Peter, Jesus is trying to tell us, what in your life do you think you can exchange with God that's going to make everything right? Have you earned enough? Do you have enough stuff to exchange with God and for him to say, oh, good, now you're on the right path? He's saying you can never earn enough. What's it going to take? See, the thing is, when Jesus says you must deny yourself, earlier he said, I must die. I must die on a cross. I must suffer. I must die. I must rise from the dead. You know why? Why must it be that way? Why does Jesus have to do it that way? Why can't God just say, I forgive you. Peace be with you. Why does he have to come in the form of Jesus and take on flesh? Because the whole Bible is built around this, that sin isn't just a few bad behaviors. It's worked into the entirety of our existence. It's like leaven that you work into bread. The only way that the bread's going to rise is if it has some yeast. Well, what's in our bread is called sin. And sin twists everything good so that even as we try to pursue good things like relationships, try to pursue good things like success at work, it's always elusive because either we mess it up or somebody else messes up or there just seems to be this power in the world that makes everything not quite get there and instead keep falling apart. This is why you need salvation. This is what Jesus is saying salvation is all about. And it's why he says the gospel is different than anything else in the world. He must die in the flesh because he's trying to eradicate sin from our flesh, from the world. If he just stood outside the world and forgave it, well, he he has to go through a process to literally take the substance of sin and crush it. That's why he came and why he showed up. You know, this is why the gospel is different than everything else, because a lot of us might think the Bible is actually God giving us a lot of commands. And he says, look, I'm the king, obey me. Serve me. I'm the king, I'm the Lord of lords, I have all the power, so the universe is mine. Do what I say, then your life will be better. You know, that's not the gospel. When he says that you have to do this for me and for the sake of the gospel, that's not what he's talking about. The gospel is not stop it, stop having fun, stop doing things you enjoy, come over here and obey me. The gospel is come. I have a kingdom that's beyond what you can imagine right now. It's composed of all the things you wish you could have but you can't get to. Come, follow me to that kingdom. And this is why it matters that Jesus isn't just an all-powerful commanding God who stands outside of things and says, I forgive you, serve me. Because you could say, okay, he's a powerful God, but what if you just came to him and you're like, well, he's powerful and he might hurt me. I guess he forgives me, but I should serve him because that's the right thing to do. Then all you're doing is performance-based again. It's just a duty that you have to do because God's more powerful than you. 
oh, but what happens if the powerful God shows up in this humble, broken way and dies on a cross? Then the one who's all-powerful also says, I came to be broken for you, not simply to command you, but to show you that my love is so real, I would give my own body to death. What else can anyone exchange in this world to show you how great they love you? The exchange rate is nothing you can gain. It's God himself. What can you exchange for your soul? Apparently the answer is only God. Only if God exchanges places with you is your soul going to be okay. Friends, that's what salvation is about. So let me close this out by giving you two practical points because Jesus calls us from salvation to discipleship and you have to have it in that order. If you just try to do this, like deny yourself, take up your cross, most of us are just going to interpret that as, I guess God wants us to be as miserable as possible. Or, I don't know, he loves us, but then he calls us to deny ourselves. Like we should go back to having low self-esteem. We should take up our cross. He wants us to suffer. The only way to rightly understand those things is to know you have a king who is willing to die in your place for your sake to give you life, to give you the new kind of life you never would have earned. That changes the way you read deny yourself. It changes the way you read take up your cross. Jesus' call to deny yourself means to renounce ultimate authority of your life and give it back to him. And self-denial isn't simply denying yourself certain things. That's what often people assume, right? Many Christians might say, oh, I see. If I just abstain from getting drunk or I give up my Sunday mornings to go to church most of the time or I abstain from pornography, I stop using curse words, I'll be a good follower of Jesus. Yes, by all means, you should give up things that corrupt your life. Those are actual commands in the Bible too. However, if you think you're good with God because you gave up a few things that were kind of bad, That's not what he's talking about. That's not what he's talking about. The call when he says deny yourself is then, given what we've been talking about, it's to denounce, renounce your sin nature. Not to renounce your self-esteem. Not to renounce that you are a person. Because if you are a person who Jesus was willing to die for, he's not saying, go back to feeling very valueless. He's telling you, go on to feeling very valuable, but make sure that you join me in ripping out everything in your life that detracts from the true value I have always intended for you to have. That's what sin is. What deny yourself means is that you and I are saved from ourselves. If, sal- if, if salvation in Christ has taken possession of us, then now it means instead of being tangled up in all the things that destroy us, we're tangled up in the glorious things that God wants to give us. We are living towards God's purposes. We are a transformed people. So we abandon what was formerly the center of our psyche, the center of our personhood, our own self-absorption, our own self-focus, any self-interest or affection or attention we gave to ourselves that actually ended up corrupting our lives. We join Jesus in saying, no, my joy is in the salvation that you have given to me, not in me trying to gain life on my own terms so I can prove I'm worth it, so I can show that I'm valuable. The only way that that works is if you've come to see the glory of God in salvation. 
This is why discipleship can only truly follow on the heels of salvation. When you see that Christ has given his life in order to gain your life, it's the only way you'll want to follow him. It's the only way that that desire will be cultivated. Because otherwise, deny yourself just sounds really negative. What we're saying, and for those of you, if you struggle a lot with self-esteem, then remember this. If you hear something like this and you want to hear deny yourself again and hear it in the way that it's, it's meant to be understood, what we're saying is the eternal God loves me so much that he sealed his love on me by a sacrificial death. So who am I to say that I am no good if God attributes that much significance to me? What we mean by self-denial is I give up the right to decide my value whether it's overly positive or overly negative. But I give up my right to decide my own value. Myself is now decided by God who saved me. And he says, I have given myself in exchange for you. Is there anything greater for me to give? The first thing in salvation is that we're saved from ourselves. And therefore, the first part of discipleship is to repent from our self-absorption, to give up our sin, and to follow him into discipleship. And that's then also what it means to take up your cross and follow him. In Luke, it says, take up your cross daily. So this is not saying, go try to get executed like Jesus did. It's not saying, go to an actual cross. Go to a place where you have to die. But it is saying that Jesus took up the pain of the cross for the joy that was set before him, Hebrews 12 says, he despised the shame of the cross and took it up, which means sometimes in this life, because you follow Jesus, you're going to feel ashamed or be rebuked or harshly treated by others who are going to say, what a stupid way to live. How could you trust in that way? Jesus took up his cross and walked through the city streets where people mocked him. And what it means to take up your cross is to be willing to say, because I don't decide the value of my life anymore, and Jesus did, I also don't decide uh, how I'm going to live my life in order to avoid things that might be painful especially things that involve me sharing this good salvation news that Jesus wants to give. Instead, what we're saying is, my life is all about honoring him. See, Jesus went to the cross because he was honoring the will of God more than anyone else's will. He went because this was the way of salvation. And so he's calling us to join him, not because that's how we save ourselves, but because we have his salvation, we're saying, all I want to do in life with sex, money, power, relationships, marriage, with my work, with my family, is to honor him, to learn his ways. I want to see salvation worked out into every single aspect of my life. So I take up my cross and I follow him on the way to salvation. The salvation he's given will get worked out into everything. Friends, our commitment now is totally to Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple. And the years of your life are very different when they are shaped by this thing. First of all, by salvation, and then by following him on the way of discipleship. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to take communion together and remember what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus, you are a king who went to the cross to set us free. So we are a people who freely go to the cross with you as well. We, we ask that you'd help us to take up this new reality, this new life, this new way of being, that we, we are not our own, 
but as the forgiven and redeemed people of God, we live life, this new life you bought for us and exchanged for us through your sacrifice. And because you put sin to death ultimately through your death on the cross, we seek to join you in putting our sin nature to death daily through our new life, this new nature that we have. Lord, we seek to trust you knowing that this way, many people haven't always told us this, that to be a Christian isn't just feeling your love for us, but it also is coming to know that your love is also about doing these challenging things also. Denying ourselves, taking up our cross, giving up authority over our life, giving authority back to you. So we say, Jesus, I'm at your service. I'm at your disposal. You will never dispose of me, but you will dispose of all that is in me that inhibits my full availability to your agenda in the world. So Lord, I surrender to you. Lord, we no longer seek to operate as the one who run our lives. We look to you to guide us into your purposes in the world. Lord, make me one who's willing to struggle against my sin to suffer if that's what it means to share the message of salvation with others? Would you daily show me how this new life of salvation affects how I speak, how I work, how I serve, how I love, how I give, how I worship, how I pray, how I play? Lord, make your concerns my concerns and let me give up my concerns to you so I can live for what you love most of all. So Lord, we pray this in your name and trust that you are faithful to do your work, just as you are faithful to accomplish salvation on the cross.